Hello and welcome to the CSF Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the uh, Griffith University in Brisbane, Queensland in Australia. And today I'm joined by Professor Strand from Stanford University. Welcome, Vivica, and thank you very much for giving up your time today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Peter. Nice to talk with you. That's great. Well, we'll be discussing two publications today, which both focus on the improvement of patient reported outcomes with the uh, new JAK1 selective inhibitor, ubiducitinib. The post hoc analyses look at two patient populations uh, from the Select Beyond, which is a uh, biologic DMARD inadequate responder study, and the Select Next, which is a CS DMARD inadequate responder study. That's a conventional synthetic DMARD study. So, Vivica, tell us a little bit about um, these studies to start with and your particular take on this new JAK inhibitor. Uh, JAK1 selective upadacitinib before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the studies themselves. Certainly. Well, so these were both phase three studies that proved the efficacy of upadacitinib in DMARD IR and then um, biologic DMARD IR populations. And these two publications are secondary publications that summarize the patient reported outcomes from these trials. Uh, from baseline to 12 weeks, which was the primary endpoint for both studies. Uh, they looked at both doses of upadacitinib, 15 and 30 milligrams, although the 15 milligram dose is the only one that's approved. And both of these were compared against placebo with background therapy. Thank you. Can you just remind us of the importance of patient reported outcomes? because I just get the feeling in the clinic, very few rheumatologists actually measure these. Um, what do you, what's the feeling in the US and, and uh, what do you think of the importance of PROs? Well, I think the importance of PROs uh, can't be underestimated. I think that basically what we see as what the disease is affecting our patients is very different from how they describe the impact of the disease on themselves. And just as we often, you know, look at joint counts and we may or may not ask about hack or pain or function, basically patients are talking about the fact that even if they're getting good responses, they're having pain almost on a daily basis, if not a daily basis, that fatigue is a prominent part of their disease impact. And therefore, all phases of health-related quality of life are affected in some way, shape, or form by their rheumatoid arthritis. And we know this also from trials where we see that a patient global assessment of disease activity is most affected by pain and physical function. But it also serves as a question that we don't ask patients in all the ways your disease affects you. How are you doing today? and they can then respond to the impact of the disease. This is important when we're trying to understand why patients may not be reporting global assessments that are as good as, as we would think they would be if we find them to be in low disease activity or even in remission. But that's all data from trials. So then how do you look at that from a clinical point of view? 
Well, you certainly don't expect patients to fill out lots of questionnaires. And if you are going to ask that, then, then you should have them do it online, and then they can keep track of the data. But a RAPID3, which is a patient global, a pain, and a hack score, a modified hack score is really quick, can be filled out in the waiting room with about five, five seconds almost. And it's a good way to see how patients are doing, particularly if you encourage them to track their progress. The rapid three seems that goes a long way. I think it goes a long way to us finding out what other things might be preventing them from being in remission or low disease activity. Sorry. No, so the rapid three is very popular in the US. Do you think it's the, the kind of tool that we should be using more widely around the world? I do think it's a, it's a better tool to be used widely around the world because it gets it at those points that are hard to ask for. I mean, when we've done these surveys of patients and they've told us uh, what their needs are and, and what what's a good day in RA and what's an unmet need, one of the major things is that they say that they want goals for therapy when they start or add their a treatment. But oftentimes there is no goal setting that occurs between the patient and the physician. So patients say they've never heard of treat to target, and yet what we're trying to do is the same thing that they would like to do, and that is have a single goal that they can check on each time to see how well they're progressing. Well, look, colleagues tell me that they they can't rely on how much of the PROs are affected by patients' personality, patients' background, depression, other other aspects. Um, and then they also say that, well, I just expect the PROs to improve when I improve the inflammation, when I improve the swollen joint count, when I improve the ESR, all the PROs improve as well. <clears throat> Is there a disconnect between uh, the PROs and, if you like, those hard objective measures of inflammation? And how do you get around the patient um, aspects like depression and like um, extra articular manifestations, if you like? Well, I think that's a good question. So first of all, um, when you do see a big discordance, then there's something else going on, no question. Oftentimes it can be anxiety and depression or, or depression on the part of the patient. It could also be economic um, challenges, which we see a lot in the US that may get in the way of how they're healing and doing. But the other aspect of it is that in trials, we still see that those patients who are responders are the ones who report improvements. And particularly with the JAK inhibitors, they report them within the first week or two, both in pain and in global. So we do know that there's, there may be discordance, but there's still the abil ability to show improvement. And the ACR 205070 include those three patient reported outcomes that come from the rapid or actually came from the ACR to become what we call the rapid. And they're very, very helpful because typically you will see improvement in five out of seven. So you've got to have improvement in quote objective, but also subjective measures. And we can argue about which is subjective and which is objective, patient reported or physician reported. Okay. Well, okay, so let's just talk about the two studies then. 
Can you just tell us what PROs were looked at in these studies? Because they were, they were both very similar in design. Yeah, they are very similar in design. So the patient global, uh, a visual analog scale of pain, and a hack were asked on a regular basis as part of the ACR response criteria. But so was the facet fatigue in the next study. It was included in three of the phase three trials with upatacitinib. Uh, also, we had the SF36. So oftentimes you just see the physical component or mental component scores, which are the summary scores. And to me, we don't know what they really mean because they weight either four or five of the eight domains positively and the remaining ones negatively. And it's very hard to ascertain what such a composite score means. But if either one is statistically significant, then you can drill down to the individual domains, the eight domains. And there, that's very, very useful because we have essentially physical function, uh, which is uh, 10 questions about actually doing the kind of work that is more than just activities of daily uh, living, but also instrumental activities, ones that are important to most patients and more modern to RA patients than the hack questions are. And there's role physical and role emotional, which is essentially how your physical functioning or your emotional functioning affect how you're living, how you're doing. And so that's also very, very useful. Then there's bodily pain, which it very closely uh, represents what we see with the visual analog scale of pain. There's vitality, which reflects uh, fatigue, as well as pep and energy. So it asks a little bit more than the facet. And then there's social function, as I said, role emotional and mental health. And there we can get at some of those differences that might be also affecting why a patient won't report they're doing as well as we think. In fact, we have a presumptive definition of depression by looking at mental health domain scores that are very low. There were a couple of other quick questions. There was morning stiffness duration as well as severity. Uh, and then we looked at health utility scores based on the EQ5D, but also based on the SF36, the SF60. So very comprehensive uh, PROs. They are very comprehensive. I note the old morning stiffness is still hanging in there. Is it a, is it a good measure? Is there an MCID that tells us uh, what a change in morning stiffness really means? There is an MCID for morning stiffness duration. So if you're asking it on a visual analog scale, you can look at 10. Uh, in this particular situation, they were looking at a half a standard deviation. Okay. But I, I have found in detailed analyses that it's very, very hard to ascertain meaningful improvement in morning stiffness because patients tend to either have it or not have it. And even if they're responding well to a therapy, those that have it still have it and don't usually lose it. So it and may sleep. be a, a reflection of a different type of disease. Okay. And sleep disturbance gets covered somehow? What'd you say? Sleep disturbance gets covered, a very common symptom that patients complain of. Yes, it does. Uh, the ISI, the insomnia index, I'm not sure we know exactly what it means, but it's clearly part of the disease. I'd say that fatigue, though, uh, reflects more because we, we've also had the medical outcome survey 
uh, sleep survey that also, also by the same people who developed the SF36. And that's not been particularly useful in trials. It indicates that they have sleep disturbance, but it tends not to show a great deal of improvement. Right, and one of the areas that rumors tend to shy away from is sexual health. Does any of the uh, PROs cover sexual health? No, they don't. And that's one of the things that patients say in these surveys that we've done is that they have a lot of difficulty talking about their pain, um, either to their doctor or their friends and family. And they have a lot of difficulty talking about it with their partner in terms of both sexual uh, performance and also how comfortable they are with it and whether or not they are desirous of it. Because oftentimes with chronic pain and fatigue, it becomes very far down the list of, of anticipated activities. Fair enough. So very comprehensive list of PROs. Can you tell us a little bit about the two patient populations and then what the findings were for the two studies? Sure. So the next population, 661 patients, they had disease duration of about 7.2 to 7.3 years. Um, the DAS scores in both populations pretty similar, 5.6 to 5.7 in the next trial. And again, pretty similar between the two in terms of CCP positivity, uh, about 70 to 80%. However, the scores were much lower at baseline for the PROs in the BEYOND trial. And this trial was 500 patients, 498. They had disease duration of about 12 and a half to 14 and a half years. Their DAS scores were 5.8 to 5.9. And interestingly, the HAC scores were 1.4 to 1.5 in the DMART IR population, 1.6 to 1.7 in the bio DMART IR population. So those are really the differences, uh, which do mean, as I said before, there's more impact of disease, longer disease duration in the BEYOND trial. Just, just on that, after 15 years of disease, is there a significant element of HAC that will be irreversible? I'm never sure about that anymore. I think that that was true in the old days when we were first looking at HAC. But at the present time when I've looked, I've not really been able to find, quote unquote, a component of irreversible HAC. Okay, that's part of it is that our patients are so much better. Yeah. Well, we part just get... of it is that the HAC questions are activities of daily living. All right, because many of the, uh... Uh, we're being encouraged to measure hack on every patient. I've always wondered when the irreversible element means that you're not going to change that hack. I think it's. I think it's the the hack does doesn't become so irreversible because these are activities of daily living that you really have to do. We may see a little bit more of that when you look at the SF36 physical function, which asks about climbing steps or walking a mile or going shopping, where those kinds of things might become much harder to do or might even be avoided. Okay, so tell us about the results then. Well, it's interesting because I think the results are quite comparable. So you start with a lower baseline in the BEYOND trial, but you often show similar amounts of improvement. So for instance, uh, the number needed to treat 
based on the patients, the percentage of patients who report improvements that are clinically meaningful, meaning improvements greater than or equal to MCID in patient global pain and hack. So right now, kind of looking at what the, the rapid three would show are very comparable. They're 4.4, 3.6, and 3.5. In the next trial and in the beyond trial, they're 3.3, 3.6, and 3.9. And we think that any number needed to treat of 10 or less is very clinically meaningful. So in other words, you really only have to treat four to five patients to get results that show clinically meaningful improvements that also are statistically significant versus placebo in both of these trials. We see okay. similar findings too with the SF36 domain scores. And with the beautiful spidergrams in both papers, and we recommend uh, the audience uh, have a good look at these papers, um, was there a dose response between the 15 and 30, even though the 30 is really not being made available? So I'm glad you recommended the spidergrams. Unfortunately, they're not the same shape and size in both of the publications. But if you look closely, you can see the difference in the BEYOND trial with much lower baseline scores. They're more impacted in those physical domains of physical function, role physical, bodily pain, and also a bit more in vitality. But what we see is that there's large improvements with both of these trials. And if you look at the spidergram itself, what you can see is the grid lines are 10 points each. And so if you look at half a grid line, that's an MCID. So you can then see how many had clinically meaningful improvements in terms of the mean scores that exceeded MCID. Now, were there differences between the 15 and the 30? I was interested because the FDA in their review of upadacitinib said that they believed that the 30 milligram dose was more effective. I truly don't see that. I truly don't see a difference between the 15 and the 30 clinically or in these PRO measures. They're so closely uh, corresponding. There may be some improvements that are better with 15 and some that are better with 30, but across their, their five trials, really don't see sufficient difference to argue for another dose. So in general, I would argue that both doses are very effective and 15 is just as good as 30. Okay, so um, just for those who aren't familiar with the spidergrams, what's the best way to interpret them? The different colors of the different arms and the shrink to the middle means you've improved the best. No, no, the spidergrams as you get larger are better. Okay, so it's the opposite. Smallest, yeah, the smallest pentagon or polygon is actually baseline scores across the whole population. And then usually the first outer polygon is placebo or the control group. The next one is the next dose, which in this case would be 15 of upadacitinib, and then the next one will be 30 of upadacitinib. And then the outer polygon is the age and gender matched normative population. In other words, a population that doesn't have autoimmune disease or any other physical activities, a physical deficit. And this is a goal for therapy. So we right. then look at the percentage of patients who report scores that meet or exceed normative scores. Now this is very new. 
in the old days, there'd be no way we could do that kind of analysis. It'd be kind of like what you were talking about with the irreversible hack, that there would be uh, deformities or structural abnormalities that would actually prevent people from gaining normative function. But nowadays, we see that a lot of that is, is totally reversible. And so now patients can actually feel and function as if they didn't have rheumatoid arthritis. Right. So intuitively, we're used to scores getting smaller as people improve. But in this spidergram, it's trying to reproduce the gray outer normative that is improvement. That's right. And we actually had a web-based uh, program that patients who started a new therapy in Europe could go on and they could score their spidergrams and they could see how much better each time they were getting. And it was very, very popular because, as you said, most of our scores, they get better as they go down. And that's not always a very good way to visualize. And so you said the same thing about the spidergrams. It's actually very positive to see that responses make, make things better in a positive way. And that's the, the view of the spidergrams. And they've been very, very uh, responsive in terms of showing patients how much better they're doing, as well as the goal for therapy. Okay, and but this is a snapshot at week 12, isn't it? You don't get to see improvement over time with these things. No, well, you can, but we didn't put them into the uh, publication because it's difficult. We looked at the SF36 at four weeks and the improvements, the majority of the improvements were already there. Just as I okay. said, that pain and, and function and global are better at one to two weeks with these jack inhibitors. So it's very impressive. Unfortunately, not a good way to put them into the papers. <laughs> well, it's interesting that um, with baricitinib in particular, but UPA as well, that there's a disconnect. No, no, that there improvements in pain, physician and patient globals lead to the significant difference in select compare and RA beam, but the swollen joint count and reduction in acute phase reactants like ESR are almost identical between the TNF inhibitor and UPA. The significance is driven by PROs. So uh, right. why, do you, why do you think the... the why do you think these? Why do you think these jacks um, are significantly better on these PROs than the TNFs we've used for fifteen years, twenty years? Well, so at the end of six months, I don't think they are significantly different. At the end of three months, I think we still see some differences, as we do with Topa, Berry, yeah. and Upa. I really think the data quite comparable. But the point being is I think the onset of action is sooner and patients perceive that benefit sooner in terms of their pain and their global and thus they also become more adherent because they know the medication is making a difference almost as soon as they start taking it. I think in terms of the joint counts it may take longer for that inflammation to improve. So we still see more of it when we're looking at their joints. Okay. I just wonder if you've got a, <clears throat> a theory as to why, because they tell me the jacks don't cross the blood-brain barrier 
and yet these pain scores improve. Is it peripheral nervous system that they might have an anti-IL-6 effect on? Any thoughts as to why there should be that difference, particularly against the TNFs? Because RA beam select compare, first time ever the gold standard have been improved upon. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what I mentioned with TOEFL was that it was never made into a statistical comparison, but numerically you can see the same effect. So all I'm all I'm wanting to say though is that this improvements clearly have something to do with the mechanism. However, the mechanism is such that we don't know what cytokines and basically actually even which jack pair is being affected at any given time and in what cell type and for how long, knowing also that these, uh, these jack inhibitors have a relatively short half-life. So I don't think you can attribute it just to IL-6. And I agree with you, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier, so we're not really looking at the central effect. We're actually looking at a, an effect of, of inflammation pain relief from the disease itself. Okay, so take-home messages from the trials themselves. Well, I would like to just mention one more thing is that um, both of them showed a significant percentage of patients who actually uh, reported scores that met or exceeded normative values, which is nice to see in a population in beyond of 13 to 15 years. So I think that's an important point. Now, the percentages are not nearly the same as they are in the next study, but that's really a nice thing to understand that patients can now start to feel and report as if they don't have rheumatoid arthritis. The other part of it I think that's important is that the rapid onset of the effect, uh, the fact that I think the 15 is, is just as effective as the 30, and we see that across the five uh, protocol populations that upatacitinib has been studied in so far in phase three. Uh, the improvements are clinically meaningful, meaning that patients have told us that that's something they can perceive as, as a, a desired level of improvement that means that they feel better. So it's not just statistically significant, it's also clinically meaningful, and it's not just clinically meaningful, it means you can aspire to being more normal in your feelings and function, both emotionally and socially. Well, we've just had uh, UPA uh, TGA approved in Australia. It's been in America for a little while. How's it going in the States? And do you see a difference, a benefit with JAK1 selectivity? So I think it's doing quite well in the States, but it's very difficult to know we have all the issues, vicissitudes around payments and reimbursements, so we never really know what, what the true burden is for any given patient. In terms of JAK1 selectivity, I know that AbbVie believes strongly that this is a more JAK1 selective product than the other available um, JAK inhibitors or even maybe Filgotinib, but my impression is that they all seem to behave clinically very, very similarly, both from an efficacy, a PRO, and an adverse event point of view. So I really am not sure that the selectivity 
story is really relevant to how we see them perform in the clinic. Clearly in these two studies, adverse events weren't looked at, but we can't shy away from the VTE and the zoster issues. Can you tell us a little bit about how they're being handled in the US and how you handle them in your own clinic? That's a good question. So of course there's a concern about it. Unfortunately, I've never really understood a plausible explanation for why these BTEs would actually be uh, related to the mechanism of action of the JAKs. Um, really, they're, even with all of the three that have been labeled so far, we can't even argue that the change in the number of platelets or the size of platelets or how platelets are handled to give a plausible explanation. We do know that VTEs are increased in RA patients. We also know that most of the patients who had VTEs with these products in these trials had had a previous VTE and therefore were at higher risk. So in general, what we do is we ask for a good history, and if we have any concern, then we will anticoagulate the patient uh, usually using uh, rivaroxaban. But it, it's difficult to really understand anything more other than to know that this is a, a thing of concern, just like the herpes zoster infections are something of concern. But as long as we do careful surveillance, I think, in fact, uh, we should be okay. And there's been such broad use of these agents in the U.S before this issue was even brought up in a, in a big way, that I think we are not too worried about it here. Now, maybe we're just being brave. And any thoughts as to where this particular agent is going to fit into the treatment algorithm? Or is that all just driven by who's insuring and reimbursement and all those on the ground issues? Well, I think the on-the-ground issues are still the major part. But I would say to you that TOPA has certainly had a major inroad because it's been available to us since 2012, 2013. Um, but baricitinib has not really caught on so much because it really is the impression that the four milligram dose is more effective clinically and not being able to prescribe that dose is problematic. The fact that upadacitinib has only one dose and the data are very closely compatible with the 30, uh, I think is making it more popular. So depending on what the issues in the ground are, there's also been evidence that if you failed one, either primary or secondary failure, you can respond to another jack, which I think is a very big, important part of this class of therapies. And so there's already been a fair amount of switching as well. Yeah, I think uh, this issue of uh, we'll never see a proper head-to-head -head and uh, we do need some switching studies done in, uh, if you like, TOFR IR population to put a bit of science behind the switch, but maybe we'll see that coming forward. Any other final comments on these two studies? A uh, lot of good questions, Peter. A lot of good questions. Okay, so um, thank you again for your time, Vivica. This has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. 
<clears throat> if you'd like to know more about these papers and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E-S-I-G-N-A-L-L-I-N-G.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and let us know what you think. We'd love a little bit of feedback. Thank you so much for your time, Vivica.